Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey, everybody, this is episode number 115, and it is part two of my conversation with the mighty Colin Cripps. If you have not listened yet, you need to go back to last week's episode, which was number 114, and it is part one of my conversation. And I'm not going to blabber on right here about anything. Let's just get right down to it. This is part two of Colin Cripps. So since we were talking about amps, one of the amps that I know has been a big part of your sound and your career too has been the the Bernie amp. And um, I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about that because it's pretty fascinating. And there's a there's sort of a line now of made by Tex amps out of I think they're out of Toronto, right? That guy's out of Toronto, isn't he? Yeah. Um, but and and there's a whole like school of of people that are sort of like mimicking that thing now with those Bill yeah. and Howell projector amps to varying degrees of success. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that particular amp and what makes it so great for you as a player and also like technically like a little bit about it and what's going on? Uh, well, they're called Bernie amps. Cause, um, cause the guy who sort of, in, you know, first of came up with it was a guy from Hamilton uh, named Bernie Rownig. And, uh, he used to call me up. This would be early nineties again, it'd be like 91, 92. He used to call me up and he'd say like, you know, I've, I, I've got this pedal I want you to try. And I go over to his house and you have like all kinds of stuff lying around. Like as, as electronics guys always do, like they turn the living room into like their labs. <laughs> so I go over to Bernie's house and he'd have, you know, he'd have this giant, um, this giant plastic, um, container that he's making beer in the corner. And then he'd have like... <laughs> So he's just that guy. Right. And, and so I go over there and he, you know, have some pedal on that. I try it out and it would, you know, be, be honest, it never sound any good. I would just be like, mm, that's okay. <laughs> but then one day, so then one day he called me up and he said, uh, he goes, I made an amp out of a film projector. And I went, okay, Bernie. All right. Yeah. Can I bring it over? So I said, okay, bring it over. So he brings over this Bernie, that this little amp that he made, like made the box and everything. Uh, pine box and he made it you know and he and he covered it in sailcloth and shellacked it and it was very crude with a with the and he gutted a, a bell and howl filmosound projector module because in the film in the projector they would put an amplifier module in from the bottom so you could they could just drop out if you unscrewed them and um was the amp in a in a projector like that meant to amplify the sound of the movie or was it meant yeah, to, exactly. for a microphone or something? No, it was meant to be for, um, yeah, you could plug a microphone into it and run it as an auxiliary to, to the sound that was meant to come out of the, the, um, this was the, these were the projectors you had when we were in kids in school. Okay. So that's where it came from. So when I, you know, first thing I said, so I look at the thing and I, and I haven't even plugged it in yet. I go, where did you get this? He said, he said, I got them from the board of education. Because <laughs> they had some surplus sale down at the, right. you know, and he'd gone and bought all of them. And these were just from the classrooms in when we were kids, right? And so, so is Bell and Howell Canadian? Is that a Canadian company? No, they're American company. Okay. But they were kind of the standard. They were the standard, obviously. They they were like the Ford of, you know, film projectors. So they they made dozens of different models over the years and they're 
So this one particular model was the ones that he ended up with, which was his 385, made from about 1958 or nine till about 1961. So right in the classic period of everything yeah. everybody talks about. And so anyway, so that's where he'd gotten them from. And he basically gutted them and rewired them in this crazy Bernie way. So I plug it in. I plug, I had a, at the time, I remember, I'll never forget this too. I had a 62 um, block marker 335. I plug it into the thing and I turn it up and I was like, like hit an E chord and it was just like, and my buddy was with me. who's also a guitar player. And I was just looked at him and it was just, it was just one of those moments where I instantly knew that this thing was going to be a great tool, mm-hmm. which has a perfect sound with this beautiful mid-range smoothness and just the right amount of top end. But the crazy thing about it and is about it is that the way he wired them, which to this day, I've shown that amp to a number of guys and they're like, why did he do this? Nobody's ever done this. But he wired it in such a way that it's just a volume and a tone. But when you turn the tone up, you get more top end, but you get more gain as you go up. Right. So it was like, it was just this beautiful. And so you could, whatever guitar you plugged into it, you could just, you could just find all these really subtle little variations on gain and, and the amount of top end. And it just always, always sat perfectly in a mix. It's just, uh, so that was the, where it came from. And, um, is it more like a Fender circuit or more like a box more or box? Well, the 385 was the, the 385 was the, the thing about guys who buy these Bell, Bell and Howell film projector amps is that you have to realize that they went through a whole iteration of different versions between 1950 and 19, you know, 62. And <clears throat> the 385 was kind of their best, uh, had the biggest transformers in it. It has the most, it has 20 watts of gain if you needed it. And then the and the versions that they made in Canada, they were they were an amalgamation because I guess back then you know like manufacturers would have to do certain amount of for export that you know they could do a certain amount of it for export with finished products in Canada. So these three eighty fives that end up in Canada, they're American made, yeah. but they had Canadian components in them as well, and they were. Uh, uh, most of the ones in the U.S. are 6V6 um, uh, power tube sections, and the Canadian ones are EL84, and oh. they're, so they're they're pure Class A. They sound very vo- like a Vox meets. Um, it's very much more in the Vox tone, like more mid range okay. for sure. And, so you uh, you related to it in that way as well, right away, obviously, right away. Being a Vox but, player. But, you know, it's a hard thing to explain, I guess, if, you know, if, if I had one, if, if you had one in front of you and I just showed you, you just said, just play, Steve, and I'll do the stuff. You'd be like, oh, yeah, well, like, OK, yes, you can get this thing. And then when I turn it up more, and I turn it, I do this or do that. It becomes five different amps, depending on what you want, you know. Yeah. So inherently, it's got a very strong mid-range presence. So it's not like a Fender, like a Princeton Reverb or something where it's there's for me they're relatively hollow in the middle mm-hmm. but it's but otherwise you can get every possible gain out of it oh. and um so i ended up using it for a lot of things right away and then all these guys that would start to hear it on recordings i did they'd be like what's that amp and i said well it's this i call it a bernie amp and um and then it just over time 
became a thing, you know, uh, it started here probably because I started telling my buddies about them and Bernie yeah. ended up, I, you know, the hip guys, tragically hip, they bought, I got three of them sort of sorted out for them. How many was he making? He only made about 22 or 20. We don't even really know between 22 and 25. That's it. Wow. Because he bought all the, he bought the film projectors from, right. from the surplus sale. Well, then he ran out. That That's was a it. finite. Right, yeah. right. So then they became kind of legendary because of because of that. And then the fact that they started getting more and more used. Um, and then, so I used it a lot in the 90s. And I was doing a lot of studio work and production and stuff. I was doing a lot of work for Sony Music and so, then, so it was a it was a real roadworthy amp too. Like he built it well, relatively well. Yeah. Okay. I I hated it for years, and then so I used it all through in the through the nineties, and then and then I'd obviously hooked up some other guys with them. There's a couple studio producers like uh you know that got like Gavin Brown you know came to me one day and he he really wanted one and then he found one and and you know that became like his tool for a lot of guitar record like tracks you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then other guys, again, you know, I've loaned mine out to guys like uh, Ian Thornley. I used to almost always loan one to Ian when he was doing a, a record because he would always want that sound for certain things. And uh, and then, I, then when I started working, you know, in 2002, I started working with Kathleen Edwards. That became my number one amp with her because mm -hmm. it was perfectly suited to... It wasn't too loud, yeah, but just loud enough to get. It's a twenty watt amp, so it's louder what? than a deluxe. Yeah, I would say it's probably about the same volume. Yeah, but okay. it but it voices differently. You know, you know, mid range always voices a certain way with a certain. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, Fender amps to me voice bottom and top really nicely, but the mid range tends to be a little bit hollower. You know, mm -hmm. even when you turn them up. Um, but it voiced perfectly with her as a live amp. I didn't have to use anything loud. It was just mm -hmm. perfect. And it started to develop part of the sound that I that I used to play with her, you know, the style of things we did. Right. And then I started doing more slide mm -hmm. with her. That's kind of when I started doing a lot more slide. And then it became a signature for the slide because that amp is the only amp I've ever used for slide that will do things that no other amp's been able to do for me the same way. Like what? It, well, it did all these second order, third order harmonics. Like mm -hmm. I'll get feedback off of a note and I can completely control it with my volume pedal. And, and it, just, it just sings in a way that's... Like it's so reactive to the dynamics of volume and how much gain I give it that um, that I sort of became like an instrument almost between the guitar and that amp. You know, I tried oh, cool. other amps. I can do it and get pretty close if I put in some kind of gain pedal, but it's not the same as the, it just doesn't have that thing, you know? And so, so all that time touring with Kathleen, you were just using that original yeah, that original. Yeah. And then, and I use an AC30. So, you know, people see 
Like I, when we do, we did a bunch of stuff. Oh, I had that in my AC30, but everybody thinks it was my AC30 that was the sound, but it was 90% the Bernie. And then mm-hmm. the AC30 was just like a, I split out my signal just to get a little more clean low end, Yeah, you know, just dial in a little, so the front of house could dial in a little bit, really tight, clean low end if they wanted it in, uh, in the mix, but that's it. Um, okay. So that was the, uh, and I toured all, we toured all over the world with that amp. And, and, uh, and then, and then I, then I ended up figuring, I got, I got to get it. I got to get some spares going here. Cause this thing's, you know, getting, it got <laughs> used to get, you know, I would get destroyed once in a while where the speaker would be completely ripped out of the, out of the carriage, you know, just touring. Shit. Right. So, yeah, yeah. but the amp is held up. That's 28 years now I've had it. And it's been literally, it was all over the world. Did he just fluke out or was he really dialed into like playing guitar in the sense of like knowing how to, how to, how to build that amp? Or was it just like a weird conflux of, I guess you'd have to ask Cam to be, to be respectful, but I would say that he was intuitive. He's a very intuitive guy. He did things from his own intuitive way but i would say it was just some sort of magic formula because i mean like i said i've shown that amp to some guy i used to get guys who would find out about it and for years you know guys would call me up and they'd ask me if they could see the circuit or something and i remember one time i went to meet this guy do you remember thd electronics they were big the hot plate oh yeah the hot plate so that guy you know i was in we were touring and that guy called me and he said, I really want to see this amp of yours. So I've been hearing it and I want to know what it is. And I said, sure, I'd be happy. So I went over to his, his uh, factory one day and, and uh, you know, I showed me amp and I played it for him. He said, Oh yeah. Okay. I know. Let's have a look at it. And then, you know, I, and the one thing about the Bernie is that Bernie didn't make these amps to be studied and looked at. It's a rat's nest. When you open the, really? it's truly like, it's just nobody, Nobody can figure out what's going on. Like, it's just a mesh of nonsense. Yeah. But uh, anyways, he took the panel off and he's like, you know, he's like, oh, forget it. <laughs> forget really? it. Like, yeah, he just like put that. <laughs> so these guys would ask about it. But then they, they started, one guy studied the circuit because obviously I had techs do um, uh, a version of it. So I had spares to take on the road. And uh, that became kind of my, my, I would run them together at one point. But um so he studied the circuit and uh, it's just a unique thing. It, 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 there's no other circuit that does that, that does that thing where you, the, the, the tone control acts as a gain as well as, right. a, as a tone. How close do the, do the Tex amps come to your? They're, they're pretty close. Yeah, they're good. I mean, Tony makes beautiful amps. They're beautifully made. Build quality is absolutely superb. Yeah, uh, you know everything is all vintage. He uses a lot of NOS components and everything's. But you know, there's just uh, you know, there's something about those original Bernies. I have, I mean, that one's the first one he made, so I have that one, and I also have now I have, I have three original ones. Where did you find the other ones? Well, one of them came out of uh, I heard about it about. 12 years ago, I heard that one came into a store in Toronto for sale. Yeah. So I just bought that. And then, uh, and another one I got from my buddy's estate because my buddy had, had one made after, after I had mine, you know? Uh And so I got his from his estate. And, uh, have you ever changed the speaker out of, of any of those or the, the original speakers as well? 
No, there. Well, the original speakers we used in them, which is also key. And I, I'd be curious to know how you feel about this stuff because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm really fussy about certain things. And I like speaker amp marriages to me are really, really crucial. And those amps also, the reason they sound so good is that they, Bernie, to his credit, he put in um, in uh, is a sixty watt, ten inch Celestion, call it vintage, ten, vintage ten inch, yeah. So oh, okay. they made these speakers in the 90s called Vintage 10s. They still make them now, but they were made in England back then. And that speaker being super efficient with the, the gain possibilities of the amp gives you this tight low end. It doesn't crap out. So those speakers, I've never blown one. I'll, I'll never blow a speaker. Uh, they get destroyed in transit more than... Right. But yeah, so that's the key to me. That, that's, that marriage is really... A high wattage speaker. Very high, yeah, high wattage, mid-range Celestia. I love Celestia. Yeah. It's like all my amps have Celestians. Even my, you know, even my deluxe reverb's got a yeah. Celestia in it. You know? Right on. You mentioned Kathleen Edwards, and, and that was something that um, seemed like a kind of a perfect gig for you. Like you were so well-suited for, for that gig. Like you're playing, um, compliments her voice in such a perfect way. How did that gig come along for you in the first place? Again, it was very, you know, serendipitous. I don't know. I don't, you know, I mean, I, I had just finished, uh, I'd gotten into doing a bunch of produ like producing and I'd done some film sort of music and that. And I was, I was just trying other th different things, you know, and I was also playing with Jim Cuddy. Uh, I'd started with Jim Cuddy in 80, uh, in 97 on his first solo record. I've been I went with Jim all that time now. Back then, that wasn't like as as focused a thing as it became later. You know, um, was um, so at that point I'd been you know and I'd been doing stuff uh, and and mostly focused on production. And then uh, my manager, uh, who shared an office with another guy, had um, just signed Kathleen as a new artist. And and so he said, well, she's got this demo. You know, can you know just have a listen and tell me what you think? It wasn't to have any work. It was just an just for opinion. You know, just okay. Is this like like o two o three kind of thing? This is two thousand one. Yeah. Okay. Just listen to it and tell me what you think. You know, just as a. So I came home and I'm you know I, I like I'm I don't know if this happens to you but I said there's a certain point where I'm just like I can't listen to any more music. I'm just totally. I'm just, That's like, why I listen to podcasts, man. Yeah, it's just too much music <laughs> in my brain. I don't want to hear anybody. Yeah. So. So I go, you know, I come home and I, and I, uh, you know, I, uh, okay, I'll put the CD on, you know, and it was just basically, it was demos of what became her first record, Failure. And I remember just listening to the songs and being like completely blown away. I was just like, this girl is a great songwriter. And I didn't know, songs on that. Well, there's all the songs from her first record were on that, on from Failure, her first record. So there's, you know, one more song the radio won't like, Six O'Clock News. All these songs were on there, but they were just, you know, they were lumpy 
sort of demo style. But it was just undeniable to me. I was like, whoever, I didn't know what she looked like. I didn't know anything about her except I heard these songs. And that, and that was one of those few times where I just was, it was undeniable to me that, that they spoke, her music just instantly spoke to me. Mm-hmm. So then I said to her, I called her manager and I said, I said, she's really, really talented. And she was, you know, she was 20, uh, she was 23 then. Mm-hmm. So then I, you know, so then I, of course, I, he said, well, if you want to call her and tell her, she'd probably really love to hear that. I said, okay. So I call her and, uh, you know, I just, I was sort of effusive over her music. And I said, look, you know, I, I love what you're doing. And I said, I said, you know, I don't, I, if you ever need a guitar player just to help sit in or play or whatever that. And, and so then it kind of just came out of that, like about a month or two later, cause she had made the record with these guys in Ottawa and, and including Jim Bryson, who's still yeah. very, very close to her. And, so she made these, made that, those recordings and that. So then eventually, you know, they redid them and some of them, they just re-recorded. And uh, once she got signed and I I didn't have anything to do with her first record, but by the end of say 2002, that record was finished and I had already been playing with her. So I'd been starting to sit in with her since probably the beginning of 2002. And then everything just, the rest is history. We just kind of, yeah. And you co-produced the next one, right? Which was I produced, Back to Me. I produced Back to Me. And that was with, you did that with Pierre Marchand? Well, uh, I did the record and Pierre did one song. So uh, Oh, Pierre, I see. Okay. Yeah. Pierre did one song and I had been working with Pierre at that time as well. That's another mm-hmm. person I, I dearly love, Pierre. And I, uh, I had done some stuff with him. He done some guitar playing on some recordings that he'd done. And um, I think I'd played on one of Sarah's, I played on, a, uh, I don't know if it was right then, but I played on her uh, Christmas record. But that, well, I played on two of Sarah's records, but I knew Pierre because uh, Crash Vegas, believe it or not. Oh, he goes um, back with those guys. Yeah, way back in Crash Vegas. I met him then and we were friends for you know a long time. And, and then of course with Bill, because Bill plays all the guitar on the early Sarah right. records. So when we did Back to Me, I produced the record and then there was one song that we asked Pierre to produce it. Okay. Because I told Kathleen that, you know, he was phenomenal. And uh, I said, you know, if there's one song that, there was this one song that I thought, let's go see Pierre and, you know, see what he thinks. And then we just did it over a weekend. We, you know, we drank wine and we hung out. And it was just fantastic. So, yeah. In a modern sense, you know, I mean, that's going back 15 years, I guess, but like, how did you approach from a producer's point of view and from a guitar player point of view, how do you approach something like that where the songs are probably more or less fully formed when they come to you? Um, you need to come up with some of those great hooky parts that are a big part of that record that are, are a showcase of the way that you approach playing and your tones and stuff. Tell me a bit about how you approach producing a record like that. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, well, by that point, we were married. So, oh no, we weren't married. We were, we were married that summer. We started the record in early 2004. Okay. And the songs, you know, the brilliant thing about Kathleen is that she's such a nat- uh, such a naturally gifted songwriter that that you're right. Like uh, most of those songs in their sort of simple, you know, guitar and a voice, they come fully formed. You know, lyrically, she's uh, she's she's just she's just brilliant at being able to to write lyrics that some people just take forever to get together. She'll just be like, it'll just be there in the morning and. Uh, mm-hmm. So when she played stuff for me, it was kind of more like a beginning. It was to map stuff out as a as a context of the kind of sounds that the record you want to have, you know, and and how, you know, what her influences were and what she wanted to sort of hear in those records, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she's a huge Petty fan, and she loved that. She loved Wildflowers. She loved she's the catchy one. little guitar hooks, and she loved all the guitar hooks. Right. which I'm always happy to work on. That's my favorite thing as far as playing guitar goes is to, you know, as I, I said again recently, you know, like I'm a big, big fan of, of orchestrated parts, you know, like things you yeah. can, you know, it's things you can sing. And so that was part of the landscape. I sort of think I was going to bring to her so that she always, it always felt made sense to what she what she is, you know, like any artist, right? What makes sense? If you try to reimagine somebody as an artist, you have to have that, I think you have to have that collaborative trust. Like they have to want to change to a certain thing that they may not feel comfortable with. And you have to be willing to, to exercise the challenges of doing that while always trying to maintain, like, is this, you know, do we don't want to, she's not a cat. We're trying to turn her into one. You know, she's a dog. So keep. So that's kind of what I think. I I always wanted to be able to make her feel like she could always be proud of who she was. So talk about sounds and things. Those are you know, like I I thought that landscape was something I was familiar with enough that I could just Mm -hmm. sort of let it happen. Um, The you know the the guitar stuff. I guess you know you 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 could easily speak to this too. It's like. Sometimes you don't really have a, a clue what you're going to do. You just know that you want it to, to sort of, you just knowing it's right. Like you just know that what you've done is either too busy or it's not enough or, yeah. you know, you have to mine through certain, uh, I generally pick the sound before I pick the parts, you know. Oh, like, interesting. I'm going to play a 12 string on a song because it's a certain thing, right? You're going to yeah. play Ricky 12 on a song. I make that choice first and then I figure out, well, what's the best way to represent the song? And it's because mm-hmm. it's going to be a Ricky 12 string. Right. So that's kind of what I did. You know, I always still do that. 
I still do that. Do you labor over your parts at all or are they quick? Are you like making decisions fast and just like basically improvising until you come up with something that you're comfortable with as a part and stick to that? I think I've done both. You know, like in the old days, I never had time to come up with stuff. It was always fast, fast, fast. You know, it's always fast with Jim because Jim works so fast, you know, and and I'm used to that, that meter. But I, but I, I think with Kathleen is just to speak to that period and those songs and and the records we did together. I always tried to come up with something that, that I felt really proud of that was memorable, that sometimes they came really quick, Steve, like I would go, okay, there it is. It's, I just got to get the best version of that. And I would, uh, and sometimes, you know, um, I know in the case of, uh, the, there's one song, uh, back to me, that song, first off, yeah. that song, that song, that song was completely different than what it ended up as it started off as this slow dirgy kind of almost blues ballady song. And I said, no, 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 we got to make this like <laughs> pick it up. Right. Yeah. And then we, and then, then I, then, then I rearranged it and made it just made it it's a simple song but it was in a different place then we got to that point where it was like okay now we have a song it makes sense it's all there but there's there was a there was a solo in the middle but there was nothing on the outro and that was because the outro originally was this long winded out like drawn out almost a bit like running down a dream but i yeah but I, I, well we're going to keep it more contained but i got to come up with a thing and i just couldn't come up with a solo i just i was just like i was I was, it been beaten out of me. I know and, that feeling. Yeah. And you're just like, you know, so I just didn't have anything left. And then she came in and, and I remember it again, I was using my AC 30, which is always a great, it's a great equalizer. Cause you just go in and you say, okay, screw it. And I turned it up. <laughs> there's the sound. You can't, there's no excuses. It sounds great. Now just play something that's going to, and she just, she just hounded me for probably 50, really? just hounded me. No, that's not it. Do it again. No, that's not it. And I, I got madder and madder and madder and madder <laughs> at her because I was like, you know, I'm the producer, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then eventually I got this thing that just was, you know, it's, it, it, it speaks in the way that it allowed for that finish. So that took a lot more time than I normally would have done. So I I think generally, you know, um, I try to work quick, but... uh, Allowing for not quick when it... It has to be right. You know, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe we're lucky. I feel like I've been lucky in so many situations where I did something that I couldn't do it again, but it's like there that I can live with that. I'm really happy. And then, then years later, you hear something and you go... I don't know where that came from, but it, it still speaks well and it's still part of uh, what becomes part of the song, right? Right. And you mentioned Jim Cuddy and, and I mean, both those artists, Kathleen Edwards and, and Cuddy are both like phenomenal singers in their own right, like different styles, of course, yeah. but they're both phenomenal yeah. singers. Are they pretty much like cutting vocals live off the floor for those kinds of records? Or, um, I mean, yeah. you know, I've worked with amazing singers too and, you know, some yeah. of them like to labor over stuff some of them you know like i did a record with matt anderson last year and it was like basically all first takes uh, yeah. you know he doesn't we didn't do a single fix like uh, so w- how do those how do those guys approach 
uh, their vocals and, and do you as a producer get involved much in that kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, you know what, to be fair, you're, you're absolutely right. They're both great singers and, and, uh, Jim's a three take singer, you know, we basically do three takes of every song yeah. and Ump is, is almost, almost in, in some cases it's take one with two words from take two or three. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's like a Matt Anderson. He's so, when he comes in to do a vocal on a song that he's written and it could be a fresh song, you know, it could be something he's been, you know, maybe it's only been around for a few weeks. Um, he doesn't like, I think it's a matter of pride for him too. And I love this about Jim, right. but he has his thing and it's like, he comes in to do the songs, three takes, no lyric sheet. It's like that song has been in his head for 10 years yeah. and he can bang off. Well, we just were working on a new record where um, uh, a Jim Cuddy record and and we have just uh, we've got seven tracks going now. We've got foundations, we've got guitar stuff and that. And he banged off five of the vocals in one day, in like two hours. Nice. Five to do it. done. He's not a labor. He doesn't. He, I mean, he doesn't labor. He, do, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that doesn't come in totally prepared too. And he probably like from take to take, it's probably not particularly different, right? Like it's, no, it's just a great take. Slightly nuanced, maybe. You know, maybe. You know, maybe. Maybe it's just like drop. Just let that word hang a little. You know, it's just little nuanced I'd things. Like to know. And the same with Kathleen. The only thing with Kathleen, which is that it's just part of her style, is that she likes to, she'll come in fully formed in terms of the vocal, in terms of the ly the lyrics and stuff like that. It's like it's 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 mm -hmm. uh, it's like it's always be, always been there. But she'll sometimes she'll try different, in you know she'll try different um, phrasing or she'll try different um, intervals, you know, melodic intervals, and sometimes they're sweeter on one but okay. not on another. So you're comping, you're comping on that, you know, this, it's not like it's cause that's just, she wants to do that, you know? And, uh, but it's still the mark of a great singer. Cause if you do, if you get 95% of it and then the other five are just their stylistic choices, right. You know, should you go up on that note or should you stay? Yeah. You know, tonic or should you go to, you know, whatever that little things that happen and those, kinds of things she really likes because down the road those are the things that you know they add spice to the party yeah her pitch is ridiculous too it's like she barely has any vibrato and it's like yeah. this, this like laser beam of you know i almost think of of her as like she's a totally different singer then but like but alison Krauss has a similar thing where it's just like you got to be kidding me like yeah. in a way it almost sounds auto-tuned yeah you no know it's probably not uh and you know, just like amazing control over her, vo over her voice. She's gotten better and better. Like when we started, she was, you know, she was young and, mm -hmm. and she had all the, you know, it's, I think if you, if you think about any performer, guitar, any musician, any artist, there's the personality and there's the reflection of the personality. Now, if you have a voice that's just like, you got a million dollar voice, it just sounds great saying yeah. anything. Then the rest of it is the it's the personality and how that develops right. over time. And then there's certain inherent characteristics. And the, I noticed that with a lot of people that I 
that I've worked with over the years. And so for her, you know, when I met her, she was young and she had this ballsy kind of, you know, sort of like, you know, doesn't give a fuck kind of attitude mm -hmm. with certain things. And that reflected in her personality and that too reflected in her voice. And that's why you get all that stuff. You know, that's where you get the narrative, the lyrics, the narrative, the whole. So I think when she was younger, it was a little less controlled per se, because she didn't have a, when you don't have a roadmap, it's all new. Yeah. You figure stuff out as you go. I think she's a, uh, she, she's a incredibly great singer. She's so much better in some ways, but she's always been good. You know, right. like I, what she does now and it's i remember what it was like to do it then it was more work but now it's just it just happens just happens yeah, yeah. and yeah. i mean those are the those are the gifts right mm -hmm. i know guitar collecting is a huge topic and i i don't want to i don't want to take up your whole day here but uh as far as far as guitar collecting goes i are you still actively involved in in doing a lot of that or has that i know for some people that's sort of like loses its interest after a certain while. And also like just the day and age, it's far less exciting these days because everything costs so much fucking money. Uh, yeah. Where are you at in your life with guitar collecting? Well, I've been very involved actually. Funny enough, COVID, uh, the pandemic really sort of, you know, it, it, as for all of us forced to sort of reevaluate our time and what we do and how yeah. we want to spend it. And I, I've always been active in it. I've always I've always loved finding instruments for my friends and I always get asked to find instruments for my friends. And, uh, so I'm happy to do it. And I, and I have that, I guess I have that reputation. So, um, what does that, what does that mean? If somebody's like, find me a telly 50 something. That's literally it. Like I'll say, well, you know, I want to get a great telly and I'll say, well, okay. Um, yeah. And I, I really get something old. Okay, well, uh, what's your budget? Well, what do I got? You know, what am I looking at? And I said, well, you know, it's like buy, it's like coming to me and saying you want to buy a Ford car. Uh, it's like it depends on you know, there's 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 wide parameters now. But I basically say to them, I kind of give everybody the same speech. I say, well, what is it that you're really hoping to get, and what is your what is your comfort zone and uh, financially? And then I say, this is what you could probably look at getting in that price range. Yeah, and that's kind of how I go about it. So I've had everything. I can pretty much find or have contacts or connections to or own things that, you know, anybody could could come to me and I'm happily able to sort of eventually find them something. And, uh, but that's generally where somebody would just say, well, I want an old telly. I say, well, that's not enough information for me. Yeah. You know, old meaning what, like 1973 or right. 1953. And, uh, and so, uh, but I still get a lot of joy from it, Steve, because I, I made so many great friends over the years mm -hmm. and, and uh, they've provided me a lot of, uh, a lot of joy and, uh, you know, to have great tools, everybody should, everybody who does this should have the best tools they, they can have. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's honestly how I've ever saw, always sought it. So I'm pretty active in it still. Yeah. I did a lot of business last year, like helping find stuff. I helped my friends in the U S find some, some things. I have a couple of guys in the U S who I, um, I help, um, locate and, uh, and, uh, and find, um, or sorry, and, and sell to, uh, to guys, and then I, I one of my good, really good friends in um, New Hampshire um, is uh, I've been helping him and his wife slowly sell their, his collection over about the last six years now. Yeah. So, yeah. 
so there's a lot of instruments there that I, um, I've sort of helped put into the hands of cool people, you know? And, um, so when you say, when you say find something, like, give me an example of, you know, a guitar that you found for somebody, like, are you scouring, are you just going through your connections of years of doing this? Or are you like finding crazy bargains in the cor- in the darkest corners of eBay or like where, what does that mean exactly? It's hard to find stuff, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's more networking and just hearing, getting tips. I'm also lucky because in Canada, especially I have that reputation. It's kind of being the guitar guy. You're the guy. To, and yeah. all these guys and all these bands, you know, for 30 years now, almost I've, I've been getting guitars for all these bands. So when somebody in a band goes, oh, you know, you want an old uh, Epiphone casino. Well, you got to call, call Crips. He'll, he'll find you one. And so I get tips as much as I get guys asking stuff. So, for example, I mean, it works out certain different, different ways. You know, I, I found things like uh, uh, by sort of scouring uh, social media sometimes or oh, yeah. somebody sends pictures says what's this and i'll just i'll go i know right away what it is so i i said well it's a 57 blah 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 or and um and where i know that there's a i know that there's a good deal in it in the instrument like if somebody's selling something and they ask you know what the price is i ask them what the price is and it's a fair price um then uh and i well i'll give you an example so like you know for last year i I found one of the guitars I found was a 19, a 53 Blackguard Telly nice. from a guy, from a guy in Canada. And, um, he was like a fan, a guy, you know, come to shows and stuff. And I and he said a bunch of guitars and he said, well, I want to sell this 53 Telly. So I said, okay, so send me pictures. And I looked at it and, and I guess, you know, you do have to know your stuff. Yeah. So I looked at it and I said, yeah, it looks great. It's original, original case, everything. And, um, and he gave me the price, which was very fair. It was, it was, I think, you know, it was more than he paid for, or it was less than he paid for. So he's make some money. And then I, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, I can get you that for it. No problem. And I called my, a friend of mine in Toronto, who's um, a really good friend of mine um, who was looking for a black card telly. And Perfect. I said, there's a guitar. Here's the guy. Yeah. Send him the money, buy me dinner. Right. You know, that's kind of how it works. Right. And in some cases I make, obviously I make money on the deals cause I'm helping people get things. And, uh, so yeah, I don't do it for free, but I, but I certainly do it as more, uh, for the joy of it than, mm-hmm. than the money. Are there bargains out there these days? Do you come across that kind of stuff or is that pretty much like few and far between? It's always relative, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bargain. I mean, it's tough to find, the you know the golden era stuff that everybody that plays might want you know it's tough to find it unless you have a connection to somebody family friend you know joe's brothers uh telecasters for sale and you go over the house and it's you know it's exactly that kind of thing but i think that there's always deals to be had if you are in you know you're looking i found deals in the last year on stuff that i just I didn't think that those guitars would actually be, you know, that they would even be available in those kinds of cool. price ranges, you know, but yeah. it's not, you know, it's relative. Like, no, do I, I mean, have I found anything it's like, like a 55 strat for, you know, 500 bucks. Five, yeah, no, 
Uh, do you still buy stuff for yourself these days or you, do you feel like yeah. you've got everything you need or are you constantly buying and selling? Yeah, I still have, uh, yeah, I still have that bug. It's bad. And I mean, I will sell, <laughs> I will, I'll sell things to, to support the, the habit mm-hmm. and, or I trade into things or I, you know, I, I, I and, or I have, you know, I, I've had a good year with work and I can afford to buy things that are, um, that are good to just good to have in a collection. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I bought um, last year. I got a. Uh, I traded a you know a friend of mine. I got a I got a, a, a really clean uh, early '63 Strat. Um, cool. Oh, I got a '62. Do you know the Ebony Block uh, mm-hmm. uh, SGs? '62. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So cool. I just yeah I just before Christmas I got a '62 Ebony Block SG standard. That um, really, really, or like you know, really clean. Yeah, hundred. And I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm. You know, I, again, I say this because I know I'm fortunate. I've had a lot of guitars because I've had them for a long time. You know? Yeah, yeah, a long time. And uh, and so some of them I didn't pay anything for them back back then. You know. So when you find a cool SG like that, does that mean that that another SG has to go out the back door? Yeah, well, I had to sell one to buy that one. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I felt gluttonous. I had three of them, right? I have three early 60s. S- well, I, had, I have a 62 and two 64 SG standards. And the one is the one that I've been, the one that's the one that I've had since 98. That's been my main SG for all that time. Like, I, yeah. I you know, that's like a, a million things. And and uh, I'll never sell that guitar, obviously. Yeah. And um, I bought that. I bought that guitar in 98 i traded uh elliot um at uh, rumble seat for a 55 les paul special that i'd had from the 80s so so then the other one was like a spare one that i had which was a perfect minty version of it and it was just sort of like just in case but then i realized like you know and then i got the 62 and i thought okay this is this is just a bit too gluttonous you know i mean i i gotta let something's gotta you know i don't need all these it's a it's it's, you know somebody else should have a chance to have that so yes i do buy guitars when when it makes sense and or um i think i'll always i'm pretty much i don't need anything like there's really there's a point where i think my toolbox is definitely more than filled do you take all that stuff out on on tour or do you have like reissued versions of no i take all the original stuff okay yeah I don't take my 55 telly on the road unless um, it's on, it's always on the ground. I never fly it. Okay. Right. But that one's just um, the one exception. So I've had this, I've had this one off and on since I was 17. What year is that? It's 55. I didn't know they were making a sunburst tellies in 55. They didn't. Oh, <laughs> this is, okay. This is one of like two or three known. Wow. Joe Bonamassa has the other one. I bet he does. So, yeah, he's got one. It's their same month. They were, I think they just, they were custom ordered and they did a batch in uh, December of 55. Yeah. And that was part of it because him and I, his and mine are the same month. You know, that's what Fender would do. They didn't, they didn't make them, you know, uh, if you ordered a guitar specifically in a color that they didn't have, they would, they would obviously, that would be a sort of one-off. Okay. But they generally would always make a couple of, of them because if it was like the guys spraying sunburst and they would do maybe two or three of them. Right. Right. 
So, uh, but yeah, no, that's the, um, that's definitely one of the rarest. Do you and, talk to uh, Joe Bonamassa? Are you, are you, are you guitar yeah, I, collecting fanatics in touch? Yeah, we yeah. know each other. We've, we've had dinner together and, uh, yeah. and, um, we've talked shop, you know, enough times I've given him a few parts, you know, things that he was looking for that I had. And, uh, I texted him the other day actually about a guitar. So yeah, we had a dinner when he played in Toronto cause, uh, uh, my friends knows him better than I do. And my friend said, well, he's coming to Toronto. Let's have a dinner. And, and, and then our mutual friend, um, Getty Lee, put together a nice dinner at his place. So we all went, we all met at Getty's and we, and we had this kind of guitar nut dinner with, you know, steak and some wine. And, and Joe brought over some guitars that he was, cause I guess he was playing here the next night and he brought some guitars that, that um, he, you know, he's always got stuff out on the road. So he brought the, he brought a couple of guitars, including this really famous uh, uh, 58 flying V that he, that he, he's got a couple of them, but this was the one particular one that's that he's known for having. And he brought that, um, to show me and what fun. And, uh, so yeah. you mentioned you're working on a record with Cuddy now, what else has been keeping you occupied during the craziness? Uh, well, I've got that started. We we're going to do that. There's probably, um, rodeo blue rodeo record this year. Oh yeah. Uh, there's also, I'm also, I'm, I'm just doing, um, I just started doing uh, some pre-production for this young artist that uh, her name's Carissa and she's a um, singer songwriter mm-hmm. got a record deal here and I'm going to do a uh, five, six song EP with her. Cool. Is there any discussion about being back on the road from like the blue rodeo world or anything like that? Or is that just all still up in the air? I think it's more, um, everybody's ambitious to get back to work. You know, yeah. everybody wants to do things that I think are obviously, but I think it's, I mean, at least from my point of view, I don't know how you feel down there, but my point of view is that, you know, there's not much we can do to really affect the change until it, until it becomes clear that everybody's comfortable yeah. to go to the venues. Like, a, and it's also a scale thing, right? Like, cause you know, certain situations you could scale it back to, a minimum that's that's going to work and play a show yeah you know but then if you start talking about playing shows in say theaters and you're uh, and you know and your and your infrastructure is bigger now how do you figure that out and is it you know is, is the scale there enough for you can actually make some money or right well thanks for doing this man um it's been great to yeah. have you on and talk about all this stuff it's fascinating and um i love all the history of where you're from and that whole scene too it's killer it was a pleasure steve and uh stay in touch all right that is the end of my conversation with colin cripps thank you so much for listening and hanging out we will be back in two weeks with another chilling episode of music makers and soul shakers We will see you then. Ciao for now. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. 
And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Mm-hmm.